You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Strange Familiars, if you've seen something strange and you want to share your story on Strange Familiars, if you've seen a cryptid like Bigfoot, if you have a ghost story, if you've seen a UFO, anything strange or unusual, or if you know of a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. So tonight we are going back to the circus after a long time of being away. Thanks to Allison. Just bring us back to the circus. <laughs> Do you guys really leave that? that really? <laughs> it's a different kind of circus. Different kind of circus. You brought this up last week after we talked about Site 7, and we'd been planning to do this show. We were going to do it on our other podcast, The Long Forgotten Friend, which we decided to just roll into Strange Familiars because it covers similar territory anyway. The strange and forgotten history that's always been part of this show. So said, we should talk about this because you talked about those, those white things at Site 7. That everybody was seeing white things mm-hmm. there. Everything everybody's seen except one. Uh, Lori saw something that looked like a giant weasel or something. It was brown in any okay. case. Every single thing everybody else has seen there has been either white or very light gray. So very interesting. And one of the stories associated with that, and one of the original stories I was told about the closed road that is a major feature mm-hmm. of Site 7. 
that there was a family with albinism who lived in a some sort of shack or cabin along the road, and they would come out and chase people hmm. if they stopped or, I don't know, drove too slowly. I, I don't know why they would come out and chase people. I mean, maybe they were worried someone was going to mess with them. I mean, I guess then you'd be on the defensive as someone. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem with that is there's no news stories of any of a family with albinism in the area. I'm not saying it's impossible that it, it could have happened. Didn't the person we talked to who lived over there say that they saw them? He said he saw them, yes. And do we know that they have al- had albinism, or do they just know that they... Yeah, were they just yeah. very pale people? I don't know. Uh, this sort of trope of albinos and urban legends is found all over the country. Mm-hmm. From family stories like this to, you know, a single person with albinism you know, lurking on a, in a particular road to even like whole sort of tribes of people with albinism that exist and will run people out of various areas. Well, I mean, wasn't there actually a family in New Jersey that isn't the Jackson Whites that was a family of people with albinism? Was that a true story? I don't know if that... I don't remember if the Jackson Whites... There may have been people with albinism also associated with them, but I think they were... Mm-hmm. They were just called the Jackson Whites, I think. And, oh, okay. and if I remember correctly, I think they tried to apply for Native American status or, oh, or something. Okay. They were one of these And I know weird... there was a um, a group of people on, maybe in the Hamptons even, with a, an alcove of people supposedly with albinism. Right. Well... Because it is, there is a familial link to it. It's not uncommon for people within a family to have albinism. So when I was doing research for Site 7... I did find a family with albinism kind of close, and that was they were in Harrisburg, mm-hmm. and they had several children born with albinism, I believe. Yeah, well, I keep reading in the paper like fifth child born with albinism. Right. <laughs> like I said, it's I find it interesting that there would be no notes in the York paper about this this, this family with albinism living in this area, but I, you know I suppose it's possible. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's possible it could happen, but we've never found the foundation of a shack back there i've looked there's some things that maybe that it may have been like sort of a foundation wow, that's hard to tell where yeah something that exactly yeah it's, it, it's really hard to tell but i've looked for it i like to find all i can out about these places so if it hasn't been obvious i guess we're gonna talk about albinism particularly in... albinism before the turn of the century and depi- early depictions of people with albinism during the photographic era there was a book that came out, well, it must be a couple years ago now, it's called True Vine, and that had to do with two young African-American boys with albinism, right? Mm-hmm. Echo and Echo. They're um, a little bit further into the, um, I, I want to say, 30s. Oh, are they that, that yeah. late? Okay. Yeah, they're more, more recent. Mm-hmm. The people yeah. we're talking about tonight are all born between 1855 and 1870. Okay. So these are much earlier depictions of people with albinism. That's interesting. That's interesting. Cause that, I remember hearing that, the author of that book on NPR, and I think even calling you and saying, hey, you need to listen to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the gist of all of this, and it's you know it still happens today, that people with albinism are somehow seen as, as other well, anybody that has a disability, I mean, that's sort of like, if you've ever seen the Todd Browning movie Freaks, you know, the, the essence of it is that people will either make you into a freak as repercussion for their sad lot in life, or they really truly are the bad guy. 
Right. A lot of these urban legends, if it's not someone with albinism, it's someone with, you know, missing a hand with a hook for a hand or, or someone with a limp or one eye or, I mean, know. I think probably if we're, if we're going to give them their, their most honest and objective take on it, they're not so different than sort of like the moralistic tales you get in like a Grimm's fairy tale or something. Basically, I, probably from a biological standpoint, there might be some measure of like, um, I, mean, I certainly don't agree with any of that, but there might be some level of protecting you on a biological level from either interacting with someone to whom you might pass on these traits. I, I, I don't like in no way agree with that. Right. That but you're stance. saying that might be the folkloric be reason. The, yeah. The for... folkloric reason for these sort of moralistic um, reasons to uh, yeah. avoid besides the fact that it's just, we have a history of avoiding other. Right. Exactly. And I think that it may come down to at least, you know, just fear, fear of something different. You know, mm-hmm. in the end, this... of change, and it still sadly happens today. I yes, people with albinism in Africa are hunted for their limbs. A lot of them have a very limited lifespan, and their families are are hunted, and they're always in danger of, you know, witchcraft. Yeah, their their arms and legs and genitals being used as part of recipes for. Wow. Albinism is, uh, it can affect people of all races. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. It can affect animals, of course. You know, most people have seen an albino animal of mm-hmm. some sort. It's just a rare uh, lack of pigmentation. Right? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. purely just a lack of melanin. I mean, there are complications for people because of it. A lot of people with albinism have problems with their sight and then they're also you know more at risk for skin cancers and and things like that oftentimes when i maybe try to rationalize my interest in (laughs) in uh early freak shows and sideshow people i i return to this book by robert bogdan called freak show which was written in the mid 80s and he was a, a forerunner in the study of disabilities within academia so he comes at it from a slightly different point of view from the sort of just kind of what I think of as a, like a gawking. Right. Or say, you know, someone more like us who is just, oh, these people are different. They're interesting. I want to collect pictures of them. Yeah. Yeah. So he's coming from it from more of an academic study. And uh, he talks about his initial thoughts about people with disabilities in this regard and, and how his view changed. And I'd just like to read a little paragraph about that because sure. I think that's what I help. It helps me rationalize my interest. <laughs> he said, at the, at the outset, my approach to the topic of freaks was simple, involving a clear and limited agenda. By studying the practice of exhibiting human beings with physical, mental, and behavioral anomalies, I hope to contribute to our present understanding of disability. I expected to organize my findings around two ideas, the association of disability with evil and the fact that disabled people are often mistreated. But as I began to study the archive material, I saw that the empirical world could not be confined by my preconceptions. Certainly I found degradation, but I also found fame and fortune. People with disabilities were presented in demeaning ways, in ways to promote fear and contempt, but they were also presented in ways that positively enhanced their status. And I hope if there's if anything that... I would hope that we err on that side, that I'm just sort of amazed by these people in their lives. And um, not so much that they were gawking at them in retrospect. Yeah, and the sideshow thing, you know, it had this double-edged sword to it where 
depending probably on your social status when you entered the sideshow, mm-hmm. probably meant a lot. Mm-hmm. If you were friends, you know, say you were personal friends with P.T. Barnum. Well, yeah, say, yeah, say you were personal friends with P.T. Barnum. Say you were Barnum. related to him like Tom Thumb. Exactly. You were probably treated better than, say, the woman who was uh, supposed to be George Washington's nanny. Right, or uh, the Fiji cannibals who we talked yeah. about on another episode. They they exactly. probably didn't have such a, a nice time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it depended on that. But like you said before, it was kind of this double-edged sword where without these jobs, essentially, these people, this was their employment. And a social safety net that would have helped them the way that hopefully people can get help today. What were they left to do? Yeah, they, they might not have had such a pretty life. Or any kind of autonomy whatsoever. Right. So in that sense, you know, you have this, yes, this element of exploitation or possible exploitation, but you also have this element of giving them autonomy, like you said, giving, uh-huh. you know, a, a way to live that was probably, in many cases, better than what they would have experienced in whatever small town from wherever they came from, uh-huh. whether it was some other country or right here. In I mean, we can make the case for um, an Instagram influencer. How different is that from like a side joke? There, there's an exploitative factor there. Um, you don't know who really is, whether it's the audience or the person. Right. Um, yeah. You don't know which presidential candidate has paid them to... <laughs> promote him on Instagram. So we're going to go back to, I guess, one of the earliest ones that you know of, that you can name. Well, I mean, there are some that, but, but she turns up really early, right as paper photography becomes more common, which is when most people in the world get a chance to see photos of people that look different because it's not, I mean, you could potentially buy a daguerreotype of Tom Thumb, but it was unlikely. <laughs> yeah. 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 When paper photography comes, they can make multiple copies of things. Yeah. Celebrity. That's kind of the big boom of celebrity status at that point. Very interesting. So she comes at the dawn of paper photography. Yeah. She was born in the late 1850s. And so the first pictures of her as a, as a child are, you know, CDVs. This is Nellie Walker. Yes, Nellie Walker was an African-American woman. She was born a twin, and very obviously at birth, uh, she had albinism, and she was shown with her brother just as a juxtaposition of the two of them because she looked so uh, white, and he did not have albinism and was very obviously black. It has another scientific parallel in that there was this idea at the time that maybe potentially black people could turn white. This is an interesting thing, and I, f- I find it mirrored in the, the Wild Man reports I often mm-hmm. talk about, where there was this weird idea that you could leave society and grow hair all over your body. Mm-hmm. You would become wild like an animal. And- yeah, it's almost like, again, like we're looking for a scientific explanation for uh, our worst fears, our racism. We're looking for a scientific rationale for it. Mm-hmm. So here we have a totally racist society who has yet to give up slavery and we think that maybe there's a chance that we we can redeem these people by making them white. So there was a lot of interest. That is, in, let's just go ahead and say that's not your thinking. That, that is, is not my problematic thing. <laughs> thinking from the past. So they actually literally said that in as regards Nellie Walker. Yeah, some she was referred to as the white Negro girl. Or um, sometimes I've even seen people with piebaldism, which is like a variant where almost like vitiligo, where your skin starts to turn um, and lose pigment. 
that those people were referred to as black men turning white. So there is this idea that race is not a fixed concept. Interesting. It's very interesting. So Nellie led probably one of the most fascinating lives in all of circusdom. She married another man with albinism quite a few years her senior. They broke up. He married a fat woman. Professional. Professional fat, <laughs> professional woman. fat woman. Not just someone who was just, overweight. That wasn't just an incidental comment on my part. Uh, she married um, a professional fat man named Dick James. Um, he actually took on raising her children, some of which became sideshow performers on their own. Her daughter, Flora, became a snake charmer in Baltimore. Um, her son became a boy, a boy snake charmer. And they traveled around the country. And meanwhile, as you look at her through the census and who she's married to, her race also changes with the times, with whom she's married to, with whom her kids are. Does it change back and forth? Yeah, it changes back and forth, yeah. Interesting. She marries him, and uh, he dies, and then she marries um, a, a third man who was a mechanic. The interesting thing, I actually talked to her great-great-grandson, who uh, did not know initially uh, that his family had any black heritage because they had just taken on the obvious advantage of being white. And he told me that her, I think it was his father or grandfather, uh, in the baby book, the mother had written a very nice white baby, which you wouldn't write. Yeah. Unless you were concerned about how someone might look. You wouldn't think. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's an interesting... So this is written about one of her descendants, in other words. Yes, yes, yes. I think it was her her grandson or something, because it was her great-grandson that I talked to. Interesting. Really interesting. Can you say how you came into contact with him? Is that Once I realized who her husband was, then it, um, I think he was on a website that said he was looking for information. Or No, actually, I, I had done a whole Ancestry.com. I had done a family tree on them, just trying to figure out um, where she went and what she did, because I found her fascinating. And I think he got in contact with me that way. Interesting. Do you know what turns her life took? So as she's marrying these different men, is she still involved in the circus? Yeah, yeah. In fact, like they're, um, I think they're from either Janesville, Wisconsin, or somewhere out there when, when her husband dies. There is a plaque that says, like, the James family, circus family or something like that. They were... Neat. And people remember, they actually have a lock of her hair. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like her family does. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So she just kind of retires, I guess, from the circus at some point? And... Yeah, I think after her, um, once she marries her third husband, who isn't involved in the circus, she sort of, she starts to lead a um, what I call a more quote-unquote normal life. She's very involved in her church, and she lived a fairly long life. But the, the difference, the startling difference between her life and her brother is that you know, they start to be exhibited when they're quite young, five or six years old, and there are pictures of, of them together where you can kind of watch their growth but at some point he falls away and she becomes kind of the the star and the last that you see of him in the census he's working as a servant for one of the um circus owners and then i've never been able to find anything more about him Mm. i mean they were born during a time and they were born in new jersey so they weren't they were born free but they were born during slavery right so it's 1850, there's still slavery in the United States, yeah, just not born, in yeah. New Jersey. 
So this is during the Civil War. This is Nellie and her brother being exhibited at Major Burnell's museum. This is from the Pantograph, which is a newspaper out of Bloomington, Illinois, on November 20th, 1863. Major Burnell's Museum. This institution is now open in Lower Phoenix Hall during both the day and evening. Little Nellie, the albino child, is the central attraction. She is of an absolutely pure white complexion, blue-eyed and crowned with a huge mat of veritable creamy tinted wool, which is not at all exaggerated in the show bills. Her eyes have the peculiar perpetual motion always seen in albinos, and we believe nowhere else. Her twin brother, a bright-looking and smartly dressed little darkie, sits on the platform with her, and both talk very freely to visitors. We are satisfied that the thing is no humbug, and that little Nellie is a genuine albino, one of those strange phenomenon which appear at rare intervals among the African race. So how old would she have been at that point? Uh, Roughly. Maybe six or seven. I oh, think. so she's very young mm-hmm. at this point. Among the many places of amusement in the city at present is Major Burnell's great moral exhibition on St. Charles Street opposite the Academy of Music. The visitor will find much to interest him. He will be introduced to Mrs. W.C. Rogers, formerly Mrs. Ellen Briggs, who has been married twice, although she is but 36 inches in height. Professor Jakes, the glassblower, has an exhibition of his astonishing glass steam engine, the wild children of the Amazon, the white Negro girl and her black twin brother, with living animals, birds, snakes, and many other curiosities, they form a tout ensemble well worthy of a visit. Visitors will find Major Burnell, a courteous gentleman who takes pleasure in giving all necessary information required by visitors. <laughs> When's that from? That is from 1867. Not t- too much longer that she's married and has her first child. <laughs> Nellie Walker's third husband. Yeah, when she's Nellie McCormick. So this is, uh, what time? What year is this? 1928. And what's the newspaper? The Daily Times, New Philadelphia, Ohio. 27th of December, 1928. Police hope of solving the mysterious murder of Frank McCormick, 61, filling station attendant, hinged today on an anonymous telephone call. The call was received by J.G. Newman, Cleveland Heights, leasee of the station, Last night, about the time the murder is believed to have occurred, the caller advised Newman to phone the gasoline station. He attempted to, but got no answer, and five hours later, McCormick's body was found lying in the darkness at the rear of the station. A bullet had penetrated his heart, his scalp, and was, was cut, and one tooth had been knocked out. The filling station was locked, and McCormick's auto stood in front, his ignition key on the seat, and his gloves on the running board. Leo Skopopopsky discovered the body while out walking his dog. In one pocket, police found McCormick's purse with a dollar, it's believed that a little more than $20 of the filling station's money had been taken from his hip pocket. Neighbors said that they heard two shots near the filling station shortly after six and thought it was the noise of an auto backfiring. Police believe the first shot killed McCormick and the second was fired accidentally as the slayer fled. Mm. Yeah, she lived, dies in Cleveland in 1922. So Nellie died in 1922, so she was, she was already dead before her husband died. Yeah, because he, he was younger, the third one. Go 
at this time, I'd like to stop and thank our patrons who make Strange Familiars possible. Thank you so much, patrons. Without you, we could not do the show. Maybe someday we'll get some advertisers to help out as well. But at this point... I'm fine with just a community of kind people. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It does. It is nice. It's nice to have our only ad being basically a thank you for the patrons and to ask people that if they like Strange Familiars, if you like what we're doing, if you like what you hear and you want to hear more, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We have almost 50 patron shows at this point. We're creeping up towards 50 patron shows. I think it's 48 uh, with February's patron show. So we're getting very, very close to 50 patron shows. You get access to all of those as soon as you become a patron. You can go back and listen to those 50 shows. And doesn't that turn out to be about six cents an episode or something like that? I did not do the math. It's either six or 60. <laughs> <laughs> and you also get access to new patron episodes going forward. We do one full episode of Strange Familiars every month just for our patrons. Often we do more, but we guarantee that one. Can we do an extra patron episode about some other circus performers? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Strange Familiars for more information. You can see all the different levels of support there starting at $3 a month and going up from there with all kinds of things like T-shirts and stickers and pins and patches and even copies of my artwork, books, and music. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon, and you're saying to yourself, but I still want to support Strange Familiars, you can do that by going to the show notes under every episode at strangefamiliars.com and look for a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by liking and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya, Google Podcasts. I really should learn what Google calls their podcast things as a as a podcast provider. I don't I use Himalaya. So you use your phone. You say, I, use phone. <laughs> I use my phone. <laughs> Mike podcast catcher <laughs> whatever podcatcher you use make sure to like and subscribe and give us those nice five star reviews because that helps get the show in front of new listeners and now we'll get back to our stories of the circus you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Then we're going across the world. Pretty far, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is one of your favorites. Yes, Unzi is one of my favorites. Not just because he was uh, exhibited around here, and I and there are many many of the famous photographs of him, actually, are from this area. Taken by. Taken by the York Photograph Gallery. Um, taken by Zimmerman and Prince, which are, they're all people that work together within York and Columbia, Pennsylvania. So Unzi is a spectacular looking fellow. Yeah, I think it's he's the, one of those people that you might not know his name, but you might have seen his picture. He looks like a man with like a three foot white afro. Yeah, that was teased up Circassian style. Yeah, and there aren't as many um, men that did that. Yeah, like I've seen lots of, you know, from your collection mm-hmm. and different photos of women doing it, but I can't think of... There are a few other men with and people with albinism. They tend to grow their hair out long, even the men, mm-hmm. just because I guess it's. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, You're like I would. <laughs> you have basically. <laughs> you have like really long white hair. <laughs> silver, silver, silver is silver not hair. Right. I've gone full wizard. So he comes from. They have a couple of different claims where he comes from, right? Or they have a claim where he comes from, but you have a suspicion that he might have come from somewhere else. Well, the circus would tell you that he came from an Aboriginal tribe and that he was the white god of of his Aboriginal tribe in Australia. Problematic. Problematic on several <laughs> levels. In fact, most of the articles that are that talk about it are so incredibly racist. It's it's painful to read. Well, what year is this? This is eighteen. He's born in eighteen sixty seven. The first time that you really see an example of him being exhibited is mid eighteen eighties. Okay. And where does he pop up? He pops up in New South Wales, Australia. So he does pop up in Australia. He does pop up in Australia. And he pops up with a really, another really amazing figure within the circus community. And that's Jojo the dog face boy. So from the get, they're together. Within a year or so, they're being advertised together. They have the same manager. Once they have the same manager, they're, they're advertised together. And they first appeared together in the United States. That's the first time they appear together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Well, they appear in Australia together, but the first time that either Jojo or Unzi appear in America, they oh, appear it is together. together. I, okay, that's what I was trying mm-hmm. to... So in Australia, they are together that early. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the articles talk about how they talk together. And Jojo, the dog boy, was incredibly intelligent. He spoke Russian, he spoke German, he spoke English. 
Now, Jojo, let's stop and talk about him for a minute. Just He had a different issue. I would assume that most people know Jojo, the dog-faced boy, from context. <laughs> he has hypertrichosis, so he has hair all over his face. He's sort of the patron saint of all dog-faced boys. <laughs> <laughs> There's another dog-faced boy named Lionel who comes a little bit later, but people get confused because they actually share so many of the same look. Oh, okay. So much of the same look. Did it's... we see a movie about, uh, like a fictional, historic fiction movie about Lionel? Uh, well, it's um, Robert Downey Jr. It's a, a fictional version of like a fantasy of Diane Arbus's. Okay. So, you know, Diane Arbus is the, in the 1960s starts taking pictures of people within the sideshow. Gotcha. So this is like a fictional love affair. Of, okay. With, but was he named Lionel in that movie too? He might have been. Yeah. He might have been. But he's supposed to be sort of an incarnation of Jojo the dog face boy. Gotcha. So yes, Jojo is covered with hair of a different color. Mm-hmm. And he has his giant hair. Yeah, they said at one point it's like six feet or something like that in circumference and needs to be trimmed every two weeks. And he puts it up in a hat. And when he tips his hat, that's when he kind of scares people. And they said he always tips his hat to the ladies. And when he does, it's, you know, it's a big reveal that all this hair comes cascading out. And the other thing that they mention is his great oscillating pink eyes, which are really just um, a relic of his albinism. Right. He's usually wearing a suit. He's always look. Both he and Jojo are dressed up in what they call the aggrandized version of freak portrayal in that they're elevated. Right. I mean, they're like top tier. <laughs> yeah, so they're always dressed in fancy clothes. Yeah, and they're almost as if like, you know, like mock royalty or mock military or formal wear. Right. As opposed to people like a wild man who might be kept in a cage and wear rags. Mm hmm. So, should we talk about your suspicions of Unzi's real origin before we move on to, to more of his life story? Well, I, I've traced Unzi into um, the early 20th century. And like a lot of performers, they end up um, in the late 1800s. Barnum does a huge tour of Europe. And a lot of people just decide to stay. And you can see him traveling from Liverpool around England a lot and then you sort of I sort of lost track of him my suspicion is um that at some point he would probably go home if he could where that is or or change his name there are a bunch of other people that kind of look like him Mm -hmm. there's a man named Carl Brew who's from I think Finland who starts looking exactly like Unzi and starts doing magic right around the time of that Houdini becomes popular so there are a bunch of people who look like him, who could have been him under a new name just to try to um, garner some new attraction. But at this point, he's getting old, old by circuit standards. He's, you know, probably in his 40s, right? maybe early 50s. He has his own circus for a while, and so he's managing other people. My suspicion is he probably floated around that aspect of the circus for a while and then probably... Died. Jojo dies in 1904, so after that, there's no chance that they're being exhibited together. I run into Jojo a lot in my <laughs> wild men research because a lot of times they'll call these hairy things that people are seeing. They'll say, you know, Jojo the dog faced boy visits town or something. And then I have to read the whole article to see, like, is this one of the many 
sort of uh, people who followed JoJo, the dog face boy, many of whom they called JoJo mm-hmm. as well, or if this is some sort of like hairy thing that mm-hmm. walked into town and scared people. So he comes up a lot with that. I end up with a lot of JoJo news articles that uh, I have to read through. So uh, JoJo and Unzi start off in Australia, but you can actually, um, I have the ship manifest for when they leave Australia and they end up in San Francisco. That's the first place they end up in the United States. They're traveling together under, he's traveling under his show name. It says Mr. Unzi. JoJo is traveling under like another appropriated sort of German Russian sounding name, Mr. Petrov. But it's quite obviously the two of them are together. Interesting. And they end up around Chinatown. And I mean, I just can't even imagine what it would be like in 1890 in San Francisco to see the two of them walking down the street together. (laughs) Did they? Like, would that have been something they would have done? Or would they have uh, put on, you know, high collars and and top hats and tried to... Well, you got to leave some point. I I do think they tried to keep people. They didn't really want to give anything away for free. Yeah. But they would have had to leave at some point. I've experienced that myself when I was playing banjo on the steam train. (laughs) <laughs> no one could hear me because it was on a steam train. So I suggested I play outside the train, and that was shut down. So we, no, then we'd be then anybody could hear you play. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to give away anything for free that you could charge for. Exactly. The Great Barnum Way. So, what point do you track him down to? Possibly uh, near Russia. Well, the curious thing is that if he and jojo are speaking together in another language that people can't understand so that's what they've noted they they, they speak together they speak together and the fact that they're such good friends would lead me to believe that there's a possibility that maybe he was finnish or swedish there is um more of a legacy of performers in that area with albinism mm-hmm. he may very well be some of the people that look like him later on yeah, that's interesting. You showed me some pictures of him, and it's really difficult to, mm-hmm. to tell. His eyes, I think, are the are one of the only major differences between Unzi and Carl Brew. Some people say he's Louis Weiser, who was um, an albino from the western part of Pennsylvania. I don't think the timeline adds up right. Mm-hmm. And I, it seems unlikely that someone born in the United States would end up in Australia first. It's also possible that, you know, if the first place that he was shown is New South Wales, Australia, when he's a teenager, that that's where he was from. And it was just when the circus came through, they saw an obvious chance to exhibit him. And then he just was on board from then. And maybe on. maybe he learned this language from Jojo. Yeah, maybe he spoke German in another capacity. We don't really know. Right. Now, Jojo, do we know where he's from? Yeah, he's from um, St. Petersburg, I think, Russia. Okay. So, but you said if if Unzi was from, like Finland, Sweden, Russia, those borders get real hazy around that time. And if he were Finnish, he would have been born during the Finnish famine of like the eighteen sixty six to eighteen sixty eight, I think it is. And so there might have been an impetus to leave, especially if you had a marketable talent like a child with albinism. Right. It's really really interesting. We're talking about people who have an amazing range of movement at a time when most people never go more than five miles away from their house. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The the fact that he's a world traveler, literally. And how long that takes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They leave Australia. 
um, right before Christmas, I think, and get there at the end of January or something and start oh, wow. to be exhibited in, in February or March. They First, they do private showings of JoJo and Unzi, and then they're revealed to everyone. They, then they start the big marketing campaign, and a lot of the photos of um, JoJo are from San Francisco cabinet card photographers. JoJo and Unzi stay together for a long time. They do. They travel for a long time. They must have been good friends. I've seen, again, just in old newspapers, several ads of them together. Mm. As a, you know, coming to town in whatever capacity. I forget what shows they were they were with. but So do they hop around to different shows? Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean like go from one circus to another? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I honestly think that there's a chance that for a while Unzi was living somewhere in the Philadelphia area because a lot of times he would be in Scranton at Wonderland. So there's like a, a winter circuit for people particularly who were involved with Fort Paul's Circus out of Philadelphia. And a lot of those people swing through Pennsylvania and do a loop up around New York. But it's enough to go from Scranton to Philadelphia to all the places in between to get to York, to get out to Pittsburgh and, and do like a winter loop. Right. Yeah. Where otherwise you can go out further with, without too much worry. Yeah. In other words, in, in the summer you can... In the summer, you do your your time with the circus. So you don't know when Unzi dies, for sure. I don't know when Unzi dies. I know Jojo dies in 1904, but I don't know when Unzi dies. I, I, the last I see of him is maybe the 1910 or so. And people are often advertising for him, and you'll see that in the paper, too. Wanted, Unzi. Or they'll, oh, really? They'll, they'll actually actively ask for specific acts that they'd like to have appear with him. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So he goes on performing after Jojo dies then. Yeah. For a while, he even has like a platypus because he's showing like, quote unquote, Australian based anomalies. Right. Yeah. And he was said to be one of the most charming members of the whole circus community. He was like a real ladies man. Interesting. I mean, he's really kind of like Prince. He's like pocket sized and (laughs) flamboyant and... (laughs) suave and fashionable played a mean guitar yeah exactly (laughs) we don't know if that's the case (laughs) he probably played the fiddle though did he really oh amazing amazing i'm gonna check out his album (laughs) the white album the white (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) Uh, i apologize for that (laughs) one i may or not leave that in no you gotta leave the white album (laughs) But the harsh thing about it is that Unzi, his whole backstory is that he is this elevated person who becomes a god to his own people because of his whiteness. Yeah. There's got to be that... I mean... That's the sad history of of the world in that every article from the Victorian age is clouded in racism. You're just waiting for racism. Yeah, you're just waiting for it to pop up. It's the same with the Wild Man articles. You just wait until... I find it interesting that the ones from the West Coast, it's usually the Native Americans who bear the brunt, whatever uh-huh. racism is, is going to be in the Wild Man articles. But on the East Coast, I guess because there's not the Native American presence just isn't mm-hmm. isn't here by the 1800s, really. Mm-hmm. It's it's usually African-Americans that take the brunt of the Wild Man racism on the, in the articles here. But, but the racism is there <laughs> on either coast. Yeah, and in Australia as well, where the Aboriginal population takes the brunt of that. Would you like to hear uh, maybe not so much of the blatantly racist part of his back, his circus backstory, but just the 
made up version of where he was born. Sure. In okay, so this is an article about Unzi when he gets to Liverpool in 1896. An interesting anthropological specimen, a human paradox known as a white black, is said to be found in the person of Unzi, the offspring of Australian Aboriginals who was born in 1869 at Terrabandra in the colony of New South Wales. The consternation of the superstitious natives upon learning of his birth may be imagined, for it was found that in striking contrast to his dusky parents, the little stranger had a skin of alabaster and a hair of snowy whiteness. Unzi is now 27 years of age, tall and intelligent, with a great mass of white hair which stands out all around his head like an open umbrella and measures six feet in circumference. He is shortly to be exhibited at Mr. Reynolds' popular gallery in Lime Street, Liverpool. And what year is that from? 1896. What paper? The Liverpool Mercury. Yeah, so there's not always the treatment of them as a scary other. Sometimes they're talked of as sort of wonders. I think you read me another article where it was talking about the beautiful cotton-like hair of one or more of, of these uh, people with albinism that were being exhibited. Well, part of that is because there was a thought that all, some people thought all people with albinism were black. And really? so they would talk about their hair being like wool in the same way they, they would describe black people in that way. So I don't really know what people were thinking back then because they didn't have a lot of scientific research to go on. They didn't know what caused this. No, but like I there, said. There was this idea of what they called at the time maternal impression. So like if I were pregnant and I saw a white mouse and it scared me. That might be a reason why my child had albinism. Or another thought was like, if I saw an elephant at the circus and it scared me, that might be a reason why my child was born with an extra limb or something like that. Very, very strange. The ideas of, it's almost like Jungian kind of, you know, sort of creeping into Darwinism in a sense. And that like this weird ideas of, of psychology and... Yeah, we're, Affecting... I mean, we're finally at a point where science is at an intersection with actual tangible ability to, to view the rest of society and what other people look like and not just your small little fam- extended family. Yeah, yeah. Which might have its own freaks. <laughs> <laughs> Most do. He also, I think it's interesting that, I mean, this wasn't always elevated like they did perform with fleas at one point performing fleas and so it's not all it's not all haircuts and uh glamour (laughs) (laughs) so there's umzi and there's Tom Jack. Hmm. It looks like an older Unzi. It does look like an older Unzi. And if you're all of a sudden in Europe now, and you've reinvented yourself on the heels of Houdini's success. Interesting. And now you're in Germany, where maybe you came from originally, Germany or Finland or Russia. Oh, uh, I noticed that they called Tom Jack the Ice King. Yes. Just as a fan of Adventure Time, I'm just noticing. <laughs> they did call him the Ice King, that's true. Do you know much about Tom Jack's life then? Not as much. There's another guy. Yeah, that's him. 
Carl Brew. And I did do some... He's almost born too late. Mm -hmm. He's born in 1884, which is almost 20 years later, supposedly. So we're not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's him or not. So Unzi leaves us in a mystery, very much like he was born. We don't quite know. Yeah, we don't really know where he's from. He just sort of arrives in a in a cloud of hair and uh, leaves Europe. In the same way. In, in the sense. same way. So you, we couldn't visit his grave. No, we don't know where he is. <laughs> Interesting. Even Jojo, it says that he, some reports say he died in Macedonia, but then I also saw that he died in a town in Spain, which sounds like Macedonia. It's one of the more major ones. And um, There's usually a little kernel of truth in everything and a lot of... Exaggeration. A lot of humbug. And, yeah, yeah. So do the, we know where uh, Jojo's buried? Well, they said he died in 1904 of pneumonia in Macedonia or Spain. <laughs> and so I, my presumption is he's buried somewhere there and that they wouldn't have bothered to ship him back to his homeland. Right. This is an article called Four of the Great Freaks from 1894 from the Scranton Tribune. First class show to be given at the Eden Musee. The Eden Musee has just closed a most successful week and intends to present four great freaks during this week. The freaks are Unzi, the Aboriginal beauty and his wonderful collection of curios and relics from Australia, Agna, the man-woman, the latest foreign attraction, Neith, the smallest woman living, two feet eleven inches tall, the platypus, the Antipodian paradox. The last three of these wonderful curios have never been exhibited here. In the theater, Muldoon's picnic will be presented. So I think this is when Unzi himself has a museum and is traveling around showing off the platypus from his homeland. Muldoon's picnic sounds like a really, really bad like indie rock, kind of acoustic indie rock band. <laughs> yeah, like they sound... Vaguely folky. There would yeah, be, insufferable. There would be, be a banjo involved. <laughs> yeah. the little folks will have today with Jojo, good-natured, handsome Unzi, and Seymour, the greatest of the mind readers. Unzi, the white aboriginal beauty, a gentleman of much culture and refinement, will tell the youngsters all about his strange, remarkable, and unnatural appearance, and will also deliver a decidedly interesting discourse on Jojo, the Russian dog-faced boy, the most striking, remarkable freak known to any civilized country. But the attraction that will please, charm, fascinate, and mystify all the little ones is Seymour, the mind reader. We're getting upstaged. Was that from? The Salt Lake City Tribune in 1891. Here's Unzi's backstory, son of Boko of New South Wales, Tarahandra. This is like the, what they tell people where he's from. With a massive head of white frizzy hair, six feet in circumference, and lovely pink oscillating eyes, his parents being black aboriginals, his father Boko, from Tarahandra, New South Wales, Australia, one of the famous chiefs under the last and late 
black Aboriginal king of that country, King Billy. From the Salt Lake Herald. 1891. Oh, look. Here's Unzi over here, and then they paid... There's JoJo on the other side of the newspaper. So our next celebrity of topic. Yeah. Of our next topic. celebrity person with albinism in the 1880s. <laughs> Millie Lamar. Yeah, I think she's one of the most beautiful and highly collectible people with albinism. Do you have any of her photos? I do. And she also was f- photographed around here. And she traveled with her friend, Miss Uno, who was one of the most famous Circassian women and also another one of my favorites. Now, did Millie Lamar do the Circassian thing with her hair? No, she didn't need to because she was a mind reader. So she already had... Oh, that was her thing. She yes, was a mind reader. She was a mind reader. So in the same way that sometimes people are imbued with... Um, you know, they have the misfortune of being labeled as other. They're, that otherness can also be of a mystical quality. Sure, yeah. And so she was able to read minds and probably pick pockets. <laughs> <laughs> she did this for the circus? She did. She was with Fort Paul Circus out of Philadelphia for a long time because she was married to someone they call a talker. Um, and what's a talk? Is that just like a, like a MC? Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm. And so they traveled together. And previous to that, she traveled with Miss Uno, the, the, one of the most famous Circassian women in the circus at the time. Now, would Millie Lamar have ever performed at the same time Unzi did? Yeah. They would sometimes have like a Congress of Fat People or a convention of albinos, and it was like the circus promoters in New York would get every one of a particular subgenre together at the oh, same time to just have like, you know, a cavalcade of, right. of, of disability or. Yeah. So if, if you were, you know, interested in like, say, say you had like a fat woman fetish in the 1800s, you would want to go to the fat person convention. I would think so. Yeah. So that was her, uh, her whole, her performance was, was basically the, a mind reading act. Yeah, and she actually had, um, so they lived in Philadelphia, right on, um, I guess it's Girard, which is one of the major routes into Philadelphia. And in their off time, when they weren't traveling with the circus, she had her own, out of a house there, a mind reading set up. Oh, did she? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Do you know much about her, her arc through circus? Well, she starts off being by her real name which was Emma and she's a German immigrant who comes to New York City with her family um, probably from Baden, Germany she starts to be exhibited as a young teenager and then very quickly her name changes to Millie in the same way that a lot of people get the name Millie and that they're initially in the newspaper as Mademoiselle oh interesting and then it just kind of gets co-opted into Millie because of misspellings Right, they see it printed as M-L-L-E, and then it becomes Millie. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, I don't know if she ever really meant to be Millie Lamar, but it worked as a good stage name. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she's Millie Amar, and sometimes she's Millie Lamar spelled differently. But that sounds uh, much more exciting than um, 
her her name by marriage, which was like an anglicized version of an Irish name. Like she was married to an Irish circus talker and at a time when it wasn't good to be Irish. So it isn't till the late 1890s when they changed back to their uh, Irish name. Oh, interesting. Does she settle then in Philadelphia? Yes, and actually she's buried in Philadelphia. I do know when she dies, um, she there's a death certificate for her. She uh, she had ovarian cancer, I believe, or and died of the surgery in 1906 or 7. They talk, I mean, here here's where the racist element it comes into play. There's actually talk in the newspapers of the time, the theatrical newspapers of the time of her funeral and how a particular um, band of um, minstrels come to play songs at her funeral. So there are people pretending to be black minstrels, like a famous, <laughs> a famous <laughs> minstrel band is playing at her funeral. Minstrel shows were, again, this is, you know, America and history. They were the most popular form of entertainment in the 1800s. Like they were huge minstrel shows. They, they were like massive, and uh, you know as problematic as as they are through our modern lens. This was something that that people did, you know. And because they were all part of the same theatrical trade, it wouldn't have been unusual for people to gather together within that community to help support each other at a time like that. Yeah, you would think so. You would think so. She travels all around. I, the most exciting time to me is when she's traveling with her friend, Miss Uno, and they have their own troupe. And it's just the two of them, basically. And do they go to from town to town? Just Yeah, they do a lot of the route through Pennsylvania that Unzi later does. Interesting. And that's why there's so many pictures in our area of Millie and Miss Uno. Almost all of the pictures, and there are... Tons and tons and tons of the famous pictures of them. They all come from this area. Really? Mm-hmm. Swords Brothers? Yep, mainly Swords Brothers. But awesome. um, Miss Uno uh, started off even as a child. And so, you know, like a young adult. And she's her picture is taken by the predecessors to the Swords Brothers, which was um, Mr. Pence. That's amazing. That's really cool. Does she travel the country and the world even? And just ends up back coming back to the area. Yeah, she. They don't travel so much out of the United States. Although I did find that Miss Uno went on the um, Cuban leg of the, I think the Barnum tour one year, but she doesn't tend to leave the United States as much. But she, they do both travel all over the United States. Was it common for these acts to hop from circus to circus? Yeah, I mean, if you get a better offer, that's where you go. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you kind of um, you're doing a lot of the same routes, so you kind of your freshness starts to fade. You know, it's almost like I think in a way, like being a supermodel, your novelty and your newness is what sells you. So you have to be constantly reinventing yourself. Mm. You have to have more than one talent. You know, you can't just be. A Circassian woman, you also have to be a snake charmer. Right. You can't just be someone with albinism. You have to be a mind reader. Are there ever any descriptions for her mind reading act? Yeah, it's like a basic sleight of hand magic kind of thing. She's working in conjunction with her husband at that point, too. And they they do, I think, one of those sort of common griffs. Mm. Uh, Lancaster Daily Intelligencer, 
2nd of March, 1887. Big crowds attended the novelty performance at number 48 North Queen Street all of Tuesday afternoon and evening, and at the latter time particularly, the attendance was very large. The work of the Bohemian glassblowers is very fine and attracts much attention. The great feature of the entertainment, however, is the mind-reading wonder of Miss Millie Amar. This young woman, while blindfolded and with her head turned away from the questioner, will tell the date of a coin in anyone's pocket, will pick out any odd feature of the personal apparel of an individual, and will name particular figures in a great number written on a blackboard by a stranger, the blackboard being hidden from her view. Her answers are quick and almost invariably correct. Her dexterity is simply remarkable. The snake charmer, Miss Uno, handles a number of fierce-looking snakes in blood-curdling style. Altogether, the show is a very interesting one, well worth seeing. This, they had just been in uh, York the month before. They had spent about a month here and then moved on to Lancaster. How would they spend that much time in, in one place? Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to get places, so... The great attraction at Vandersloot's new building, number 6 West Market Street, is drawing the attention of our amusement lovers, and the large room is crowded. The presents given everybody who visit the entertainment are really wonderful specimens of the glassblower's art, while the performances of Miss Millie Lamar and Miss Uno surprise and delight everyone. The exhibition is open afternoon and evening and is well worth a visit. And that is from the York Daily from York, Pennsylvania, 8th of February, 1887. So with these different articles, you're literally able to follow them from town to town, essentially. Yeah, I actually have a pretty good record of where all of them were. At different times. Mm -hmm. Well, moving on, but staying on theme, Mm. the photo of the week. These are really, really cool. We have two. Two available. Can you explain what a cyanotype print is? Yeah, there's basically the sun prints used to do as a kid, where you put a leaf down and then you see the shape of the leaf. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're uh, photos without a camera, basically. But these are two reproductions you made. Uh, based on actual photo of a picture of Unzi that was taken uh, in our hometown. Oh, so this is one of the ones taken from from York. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, so we have two prints, two cyanotype prints of Unzi. One's a little bit of a lighter print, and the other is a little darker. Both of them kind of look amazing. I love them both. Really yeah, you cool can print. see his sort of his very very light colored eyes. Like there isn't really much pigment. Yeah, and these are printed on a, a really nice, heavy watercolor paper. Yeah, they're like, I think they're the heaviest watercolor paper. And it's like a acid-free and all that jazz. Yep. Mm-hmm. They are roughly 8 by 12, roughly. They're a little bit smaller than that. you got nice hand-torn deckled edges on the prints. Yeah, and if you didn't know, cyanotypes are blue. That's where the cyan part comes in. So they're, it's it's all blue tones, and it makes him look sort of ghostly and frozen. And Really, really neat the way they're printed. You can see them in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com under this episode. There's two available, and they will be in our Etsy store for purchase. These will be $30 each. Hand printed Unzi cyanotype photographs, $30 each plus postage to wherever you are. Again, they'll be in the 
the Strange Familiar's Etsy store. If you don't want to go through Etsy and you want to buy them directly from us, that's an option too. You just contact me and let me know. But Etsy's certainly the easiest way. That way I can put them up and when they sell, they sell. Yeah, we don't have to refund anybody any money if they... Exactly. So these are really, really cool prints. Um, maybe we'll make some more. Maybe you, maybe you'll make some more <laughs> down well, the we road. We have to get some. It's a lot easier to make cyanotypes um, in the summertime than it is this time of year because of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. These these are really really neat. Really neat. So handmade Unzi reproduction photographs by Allison cyanotype prints. Photo of the week. We got two of them for sale. Dark and a light variant again in our Etsy store. Be one of us. <laughs> uh, purchasing Photo of the Week helps support Strange Familiars the same way patrons do and the same way PayPal donations do. So if you're interested in these, go ahead and check them out at strangefamiliars.com or you can go to our Etsy store, which is store name is Lost Grave on that and get something cool, get a cool print of Unzi handmade by Allison and help the show at the same time. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Lots of great stuff coming up, guys. Stay tuned. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. You can find more at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can also join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we are on Instagram at strangefamiliars.
the cold night and whispering the words of the dead. Have you seen the sleepwalkers as they drift out of sight? Have you heard the sleepwalkers chanting as they roam? Under skies of red, where do they part? The quick from the dead. flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.